This is the Africa's Game Changers podcast, and I am so excited to bring you today our very special guest, Mr. Adrian Ambe, as we engage in an interesting conversation about transitions, technology, and transformation in Africa. Adrian, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure to be with Kimberly. Thank you for the invite. Thank you. All right. So for some of us who may not be familiar with your work, would you be able to share a little bit about what you do and what your background is? Okay. Uh, again, thank you for being on the show. Uh, so very briefly, um, I worked a bit in the United States with the U.S. government um, when I immigrated there in 1999. And then uh, uh took what I learned from there and brought back home in uh, 2015 uh, and really started delving into the field of technology. So mainly looking at blockchain and um, other related uh, fields. So I've been involved in the blockchain field. Uh, I've actually been looking at uh, trying to develop a crypto uh, and also involved in spaces where uh, blockchain conversations are taking place. All right, so let's start at the very, very beginning. You grew up in the dynamic city of Nairobi, Kenya. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. So, yeah, I pretty much grew up here, um, you know, from uh, nursery, primary, secondary, and then through college. Those are very interesting times, you know. Uh, uh, the ones that actually do stand out is um, uh, when I went to high school, I went to a boarding school and it's called Nairobi School. It's one of the national schools uh, here in Kenya. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, one of the uh, things that actually stand out during my period, during my time in high school is rugby and rivalry, you know, almost uh, tongue twister. And uh, one of our um, opponents that uh, we always used to both fight with academically and also on the rugby field uh, uh, called Lenana High School. Uh, and their pseudonym was Changes. Uh, Nairobi School was called Patch. So, um, yeah, those are things that really stand out during that period. Um, and um, it, it's amazing that until today, that rivalry still remains. Yeah, and then uh, went to uh, went to university at uh, USIU, United States International University, Africa, uh, and that was a very very transformative period for me um, as a as a student. Um, I joined a very very interesting uh, international student exchange organization called ISEC. During my period uh, in ISEC, I attended meetings was involved in projects, some of which uh, I was uh, the lead, uh, and also held some uh, executive board positions at the uh, campus level and also the national level. What was most interesting is when I did my first travel out of Africa and actually went to uh, Uganda, um, uh, it was a very interesting flight, you know. Uh, we were attending a conference actually in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. So it was a very interesting trip. We flew from Nairobi to Entebbe, Entebbe, Johannesburg, Johannesburg, and then we arrived in Harare. Interestingly enough, the Zim dollar was, uh, uh, I think the exchange rate was like two Zim dollars to the US dollar, if I remember correctly. Um, something, something close to that. And then uh, I think we needed uh, uh, something like, 10 Kenyan shillings to get one Zim dollar. 
really times have changed, you know, uh, when we think about that. But that was my first out of Africa experience, you know, and uh, it was so eye opening, you know, being able to see other student leaders uh, from the um, uh, who are ISAC members on the African continent and just being able to um, uh, see, uh, see and be in the enthusiasm uh, and the spirit uh, and also realize that sometimes we might face uh, similar challenges, but there might be very different approaches towards trying to solve them. Uh, those might be environmentally driven, uh, might be just the structure, you know, of, uh, you know, the various societies, governments, societal makeup, you know, institutions and whatnot. Um, but for me, that was just, uh, you know, um, it was just like, it was a moment that I became very thirsty. I said I wanted more, you know, um, I tried to travel to as many ISEC conferences as I could and meet as many people as I could like-minded, different, you know, uh, and just be in that space and just sharing conversations. It would be interesting to find out a little bit more about what was happening in your country and where you were traveling in other parts of Africa from a social political perspective during that time when you were growing up. What were some key highlights that you remember from that time? Well, during that time, and I'll be, you know, just like any college student, um, we were the, I, I guess I'll be lumped up in the naughty lot, you know. Uh, used to play rugby and we used to party a lot, you know, so which was kind of ridiculous, you know. So to some extent, we were, we were living in the moment uh, a little bit devoid of, um, and I'll be honest, during that time, I was not attuned to politics, you know. Um, I was just trying to uh, be a rugby player, um, you know. Then I was playing for a Division One side team, which is called Mwamba. Um, didn't play for my campus. That didn't go down too well. Yeah, but to be honest, during that time, I was not very connected with what was happening uh, uh, politically, socially. What I do remember was this. Uh, whenever there was strife, that affected transportation or, or me being able to transit from, uh, let's say, from home going to campus, then that's mm -hmm. the time I was distraught and that's when I would key in on those things. But otherwise, you know, um, worried about homework, trying to get to my rugby practice, uh, mm -hmm. trying to see where the next event or conference is. Uh, and also uh, something about ISEC that we learned is for the organization to be, you know, to sustain we always had to do what I call company visits in order to be able to raise money and get funding. So those are the things really I was really concerned about. So at least at that point, I understood that for an organization to function, it needed resources. And part of that resources was like money, board of advisors uh, and things of that nature. But something does stand out, however, um, during my, you know, almost towards the end, um, uh, not, not even actually towards the end, but even actually the beginning. One of the conferences that actually stood out um, was uh, what's called African Congress, uh, and it was being hosted by Kenya. So got there and saw all these guys who were coming in from you know all parts of Africa. What was also very interesting is that that time uh, the Attorney General, still remember his name, Amos Wako, Honorable Amos Wako, uh, actually came 
and was there at the event. So that really, you know, you know, these are people that at my level, we don't interact with, we don't even see them. We see them just on television, but now he's here in flesh. So I'm, um, I'm a freshman in university and I have gone for this international, rather regional conference. And there are all these leaders who are, you know, and they're using a lot of acronyms, which some of them I cannot understand. And they're talking about this uh, cloud nine type of stuff. Then here's the attorney general and it's being held at uh, the United Nations Environmental Program headquarters in Nairobi, you know, and I'm just like blown to smithereens. You know, I'm just sitting there and I'm just trying to absorb all this, you know. So, um, yeah, it was a little bit overwhelming, you know, uh, and then fast forward almost towards the end of my term in ISEC, and that was in 98. And fortunately, uh, the event that actually stands out was August the, uh, I'd say August the 7th or August the 8th, uh, the embassy bombing in Nairobi. Um, I was actually at the National ISEC office, uh, which is roughly about a little over a mile uh, from where the embassy was. Bomb went off. And um, yeah, I thought literally it was because uh, the uh, central police station is literally next door to where we were. So I thought the bombing actually took place there. So I ran out of the office only to see like printer paper falling from way up in the sky. And that like really introduced another complete different dynamic in terms of uh, understanding transnational um, you know, activity and, uh, you know, policies and how they impact others and uh, terrorism and all that. Yeah. And that really became uh, something that uh, was almost like an unfortunate parting gift, you know, during, um, you know, my time during that time and just remembering loss of life. And one of the major things that uh, Isaac stands for, you know, is trying to promote and enhance uh, peace and fulfillment of mankind's potential. So, um, yeah, that was, uh, and, and, and knowing that at that point, you know, we're discussing things at a very, you know, like national level, international level, and always trying to work on that understanding, then this happens. That is the point you realize, you know, you're a student, you know, with a lot of ambition and dreams, but then there's reality which you have to go and deal with. So you finished your university in Nairobi, Kenya? Yes. And uh, after that, you decided to go to the U.S. And I was just curious if Bawa had always been a part of the plan. Is that something you had aspired towards, you know, considering now you've traveled to different countries within Africa with Isaac? Did you plan, oh, I'm going to go to the U.S.? No, um, well, at that time, it's nothing that I'd planned. Uh, my mom actually was uh, in the U.S. at that time. She is uh, uh, working with the International Monetary Fund, one of the Bretton Woods sisters. And lo and behold, uh, me and my brother, we were recipients of uh, the uh, Green Card Lottery. And as you know, there's the requirement that you have to travel uh, to the U.S. within uh, 12 months. So... Um, I was only traveling to the United States just to fulfill that requirement uh, to ensure that I maintained an active uh, green card, you know. Um, and then uh, when I got there, my friends literally, uh, and I know I always say this story until today, it is one of the things that uh, sometimes tests friendships and also 
uh, loyalties. Uh, I told people, hey, I'm going for two weeks, I'll be back. You know, well, two weeks ended up being 10 years. So I, I left, uh, what is crazy, I remember all the details. I left on an Air, Air France flight, uh, it was flight 581. Uh, we took, wow. we were wheels up at 11.01 p.m., uh, or as we'll say, 23.01. And um, I ended up landing in the U.S. Um, like two days later. And for me, it was, you know, I knew all along I am going back home. And when I got there, things happened so fast, you know, um, you know, met some recruiter who works with the U.S. government. You know, he's like, hey, you know, this, 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 this. Uh, and um, then he asked me, what's your status? I said, hey, you know, I have a green card. You know, I said, oh, that's great. Then he asked me, will you be interested in like getting a college degree? You know, and you can think, the, thinking of this reference, well, when you think about being a government employee in Kenya, it's not really something that is very appealing. What, what, what I truly and really wanted to do is be an entrepreneur, you know, be able to do something, you know, what I wanted to do, I did not know. I knew I just wanted to be an entrepreneur, do something. Well, that was, was not clear. So, um, so this recruiter said, you know, will you be interested in working for the government? And I'm thinking, huh, government employee, uh, no, you know, give me a break. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, then, then, then he said, uh, well, it says you'll, you'll get all these benefits. I was like, hmm, okay, I told him, no, thank you very much. Then he said one thing, which kind of was like the hook. He said, we will give you, we can give you money to do your master's program. And as you know, master's program in the United States is extremely, extremely expensive. So I was like, I was like okay, um, I'll sign on, you know. And uh, what I thought will be a small gig for about maybe, because of course, you know, it's a contract, you know. So I said, you know, I'll do it for four years, six years, eight years ended up being spanning 17 years, you know, so, um, you know, and, you know, I'm very, very grateful and very, very thankful, you know, for the United States government for according me that opportunity, uh, not only work with them, and it doesn't seem that I left the, the traveling bag, it seems I picked it right on and uh, yeah. just continued, you know, and just continued traveling, you know, uh, you know, various places, you know, Southeast Asia, you know, we're in several countries, you know, from Japan, you know, Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, Kingdom of Brunei, Singapore, then the Middle East, you know, uh, with them as well, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, Kuwait, Kingdom of Jordan, just, you know, amazing opportunities and just being able to also work on behalf of the United States government. So that, that was really, um, you know, really rewarding experience and really, really learned a lot, you know, from those people. And also within the United States, you know, uh, traveled to a lot of places, lived in a lot of the states, you know, North Carolina, um, Washington, D.C., uh, Maryland, Virginia, New Orleans. And, uh, you know, thinking of New Orleans, you know, I, you know, got my papers assigning me there right after Hurricane Katrina. You know, so just being able to see the human strife and being able to get there and be involved in the rebuilding efforts. So that was, uh, you know, very, very good experience. So, Really, the U.S. government really gave me a you know great opportunity, not only to work but to travel not only within the United States but also around the world. Around the world, that's incredible, actually. So, I mean, you ended up spending around 17 years in the U.S. Yet you had planned to only spend a few weeks. So, I guess my question really is. Would you, you know, looking back in hindsight, 
would you have done anything differently or do you think it was the right path that you ended up taking to be honest to be honest it feels that you know there there are some decisions they just feel they're right you never prepare for them you never had any advance notice but when it's presented to you uh you've not even i won't even say you not even thought it out but your gumption your sixth sense just says this is the right thing to do i will never regret it i will i'll not even say i will i would have done it another way but if there are things within there within my period there that that if there are choices career choices or uh things within there that i would have elected you know instead of what i ended up with yes absolutely but overall no i will not change anything i think to a great extent it has been the using the analogy of a blacksmith it has been the anvil that you know that has sharpened and you know rounded the edges and just gotten me to where i need to be so um as we know life is a journey you know and i think that is that was a remarkable journey for me looking back at my high school and my college days they were dreamy working with the us government grounded me and also introduced me to the realities and trying to always and as much as it is a fast world but spent a fairly good amount of time in a lot of the developed parts of the world so that anchors you and in terms of uh relating to people trying to develop solutions and um always realizing that sometimes someone might not move or act as fast as you can because they might not have the uh, they might not have the resources uh the skill the know-how and the personnel as you do so bring you down to you know trying to always see things from their level and taking things from there uh, as they say you're only strong as you are you know weakest link yeah so for me i think it was it was a great great opportunity uh and really i cherish uh, i cherish it i you know i'm i'm in contact still with uh uh some of uh you know the colleagues that we worked with uh who have moved on to do big and better things and some were still in yes wow so you got the opportunity to build relationships meaningful long lasting relationships with some of your colleagues which is incredible and also the travel just really broadens your perspective on different things so that's that's incredible really and i guess um what's very unique about your story is that you've always almost wanted to come back home but for some young people within the african continent who are thinking about working abroad uh there are various other factors that are pushing that decision such as the lack of employment opportunities so according to the brookings institution africa will have the largest number of young people in the world by the year 2050 and this brings a lot of opportunity but also a lot of challenges when it comes to job security for all these young people So my question really is um is there any one piece of advice you could give to a young african today um who may find themselves you know in a dilemma whereby they can't find employment back home or something to do back home and they're thinking about going abroad in order to expand their experiences and um broaden their perspective Well that is a very very um 
it's a very introspective and uh, also reflective question. Um, so I will begin on the introspection part. When I was leaving, when I was leaving, and you know, and I'll be honest, um, you know, there, there, there are moments when you're finishing college. You know, there are very few. There are very few of us who say, "Hey, I want to go." You know, who are very clear about their career choices, what they want to do. There's that period there where you're just fumbling, trying to figure out stuff, trying to even figure out who you are. So during during that period, during during that period, uh, that's why I said, ah, "I'm just going to go to the U.S. and I'll be back after two weeks." For me, the path was not clear. You know, it was not clear. Uh, I think it was only until I was probed and I was offered options that is when that door kind of like there was a crack. And, you know, I kind of took a peep and I was like, hmm, okay, maybe I can do this, I can do that. And then that's when things kind of, you know, I decided, you no, know, maybe this might be something that might be worthwhile. So suddenly the, 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 there's that aspect, there's that aspect that uh, the developed world has very defined structures and systems and, uh, you know, clear things that if you have a certain profile, if you have a certain profile, then you qualify and you're eligible for certain things. In that regard, I feel the honors or the challenge is back to our own African governments. If they can be able to do that, then I think people will realize that there are actually more opportunities here. Now, let me <clears throat> go back on the reflective part. After the 17 years, and you know, it is after you do all this traveling, you know, none of us have this wisdom when you are 20 something, you know, it only hits you and you are a little bit, uh, you're, you begin graying up. Looking at it when I, you know, the first time I came back to Nairobi was 2009 and it had tremendously changed. Uh, so you can imagine this is me, someone who's uh, thinking, hey, you know, I'm here hanging out, you know, walking through some of the exclusive corridors, you know, around, you know, D.C. and wherever. And then, whoa, you come back to Nairobi and then you feel that it is it is not even exponential. It is like a quantum leap. In fact, even until today, there are parts of Nairobi that I go to that I feel like I'd never seen. I've never seen them. And I feel like I'm absolutely lost. Someone tells me in Nairobi, I'm like, no way, you know. So what, what that trip actually made me realize is other than making me very homesick and also very, you know, homesick about the food, you know, and, you know, friends. But I realized and I realized it when I got back to the United States that what is framed uh, or, or as we'll say, the narrative is that there's no opportunity this tremendous opportunity. One of the greater discussions which actually got me now really involved in uh, blockchain and in specific like the cryptocurrency talk is uh, something I came to realize, and this was back, uh, I think, more in 2015 when I was back now for a long duration of time. Uh, you notice that there's a lot of money that changes around Nairobi. However, when you look at the Western system and the Western portals, uh, they use things like your central bank and your, you know, your banks or your stock exchange. Those are those are their units of measure to gauge, you know, how much transaction that is taking place. Now let's go back to 2015. Uh, the World Bank just rebased the Kenyan economy because they realized that there is an informal sector which actually moves a whole lot of money, which they even admitted themselves. They put an asterisk. They said we've just realized this economy is much larger than, you know, 
then uh, we've actually reported it. And, and we, even the extent of the informal sector, we weren't able to capture all of it. But we can say it's this. And then they moved up the income per capita. So you can imagine now me transiting back, looking at all this and around everything. And being around Nairobi and you're seeing a lot of the transactions are money. And one of the greatest inventions, you know, at least in this decade is M-Pesa, you know, mobile money. Mobile money at least gives a yeah. glimpse of how much money just transacts that doesn't go through your traditional, you know, brick and mortar banks or, you know, if it's Barclays or whatever, you know. So people began to realize that people are holding, you know, they're able to do a lot of transactions, you know, and there's a lot of money that is circulating around, you know. Uh, so what that did is convince me that there's greater opportunity here than there was there. There, yes, it is more defined, it is more structured, but I think in terms of, you know, if you have an idea here, yes, it might take a little bit of time before, you know, uh, you start seeing something, but I think if you make it here, the levels to which you'll be able to, you know, exponentially go is much farther than, you know, the developed markets. Uh, and you can see that clearly with M-Pesa uh, and the products yes. that it continues to, uh, you know, roll out. Um, and um, we don't have challenges such as, and, and I was looking at this, you know, with the, in particular in the telecom sector. In the developed world, you know, because, you know, all systems, they used to have the lines, you know, the, you know, your telecom lines and, and everything. And uh, those are extremely, extremely expensive. Part of the reason why Africa uh, and, you know, in a country like Kenya, Kenya has more than 80% cell phone penetration, you know, which is unheard of in a lot of those developed worlds. They cannot do that because of just cost, you know, but you find a telecom company coming here does not have to uh, do uh, what will, they don't have to deal with, uh, with what we call legacy equipment. Some of those companies such as Verizon and AT&T in the United States they have to extend the shelf life of some of those infrastructural equipment uh, to not only get the bank for the buck, but trying to replace them is so costly that they have to just keep on with, you know, with the old stuff. But that is not the case here. You know, here is like someone comes, you know, you can just easily, yeah, the initial, there's always going to be that initial cost, but uh, it is not, the, the cost of entry is not as high as compared to when you're trying to do that in a developed market. Mm-hmm. Very, very true. So I guess I'd love to discuss more about, you know, some of the technological advancements that um, present huge opportunities for African governments. But before we go there, yes. uh, just to um, maybe close off on this, you know, theme of transitioning. So you lived abroad for a couple of years and what exactly sparked you to you know decide like now i want to go back to kenya i have to go back to kenya what was that initial spark that was like this is the time i have to do this now um what i will say is um and we always talk about this all the time again i'll go back to the thing that very very grateful very thankful you know, for the U.S. government and how it shaped me and formed me to be who I was. However, there is a downside, Mm. you know, there's that, however. You work extremely long hours. 
And, and unlike being here in Kenya, where <clears throat> government employees, you know, they'll show up, leave a court on, the, uh, you know, on their chair, disappear at 10, you know, at, you know, and still get away with it, and they collect the salary at the end of the month. I will tell you there it is, uh, it's literally, okay, I'm not going to call it literally, but it feels like it is, uh, for lack of a better way of being able to describe it, is like you're being lashed at, you know, and you walk, you earn your money, literally, you earn it. You know, you earn, mm. you earn what you're paid, you know. So that means you're on the clock. And the moment you get to, let's say, whereby you are, you know, you're a department head, then there are even more responsibilities. Uh, we used to get, uh, we used to get what's called the uh, Blackberry. Uh, we used to call it the Crackberry, you know. Any point in time during the day or night. And, and usually it was your boss calling, so you have to pick it. And usually it involves work. You know, there was always a crisis and, okay, this has happened. You need to do this. I remember in a particular case, <clears throat> we had a fatality. And um, then I was told, hey, you need to work on this. You need to prepare this. And that was 11 at night. And then I sent it in and I was waiting to hear back from the uh, staff secretary. And he told me at one in the morning, hey, great. Boss has received it. See you, see you, see you today at work, you know, at six. And usually I had wake up at 4.30. And then for my one hour drive in. So you could imagine, you know, yeah, you've not slept much. But again, it is that thing of, uh, you know, and I think the greatest thing that I learned from there is service for others before self, you know, that aspect of self-sacrifice. So um, what really sparked that? Now, to really answer your question, what really sparked that is 2009 was the first time I came back to visit, you know, and I was just blown to smithereens. I came back in 2010. And 2010 was very nostalgic. Uh, now I got a chance to now like really meet my high school buddies, you know, and, you know, see the things that they're doing, you know, meet them, you know, with your wives and kids. Um, some of them, you know, they were jokers, you know, and even still until today they are. Okay, sorry to say that. But, but you, you can tell they, they found a balance in life. They're not working, you know, the work is not what defines them. You know, they have a family, you know, they're doing what they're doing. They, they are bringing home food and, you know, life is going on, you know, so you don't have to be making uh, big money, you know, uh, you know, but killing yourself in the process. So what really triggered me is being able to see that balance in life, you know, being able to have that balance between your career, you know, family, uh, hobbies and, you know, friends, you know, and things that you're doing around you. And to be honest, it was. It was. It is sad to say that uh, I. It felt like I had to wait for a year to come back for that true reunion and true connection, you know. Um, whilst I was slaving away, you know, for the rest of the year, you know, and and it only lasted two weeks, you know. So it was. It was very difficult, and in particular, departing from Kenya, going back to the you know the U.S. in 2010 was for me was that moment that I was, my, my toes were hanging on the cliff. And I'm just like, you know, um, yeah. And then it became, it, it just, be, from there, it became now just very, very difficult. D during that period, then stationed, uh, you know, overseas. And then when I came back from overseas, I was like, you know what, I'm done. Because I was doing 18-hour days in very difficult situations. What is also very interesting is, regardless of those difficult situations, that is where among the yes. strongest and best bonds were made 
um, because it reveals yeah. your character. Uh, and also when you are, when you're down, people don't kick that into your face. They, you know, they pick you up and, you know, and for me that really meant a lot, you know, so it even makes you, those 18 hours don't feel like 18 hours, uh, especially knowing that there are others who are in less desirable conditions and they have it much worse. And unfortunately we, you know, we lost a few, you know, so, and we always keep them and their families in our prayers. But, uh, I asked myself, you know, I had that moment whereby I sat and asked myself is, you know, sometimes this is what people chase. They chase this opportunity, but at what cost, you know, uh, no balance in life, you know, you know, no family, you know, nothing really to, you know, um, to speak of, you know, because at the end of the day, it's not money, it's not houses, not cars, which you used to define yourself. So that, that to me became the point that, it, be, it became the turning point. And I decided that it is difficult because I knew staying on, you know, you're getting promotion, more is expected from you, you know. Uh, so I, I decided, you know what, I, I don't want to continue on. Uh, thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity, but it is time for me to go start over. Um, and let me be honest, it is, when I made that decision, I had no idea. I had no idea what I was going to be able to do. At that point, I'll be honest, I knew zero about blockchain. And um, yeah, and uh, it was just, you know, it was just a period that uh, I just wanted to um, unwind and just figure out who I am. And uh, uh, the, the only thing, the only consistent, the only consistent uh, uh, item during all that, during my travels, during my hardships, during my highs and lows, I had a camera. I used to take pictures. Uh, and I think that that's how, you know, bumped into you in, uh, in, in, uh, at, the Dubai, uh, at the Dubai Marina, you know, and uh, we, we, we just started chatting. Um, but uh, that, became, that became my escape, to be honest, you know. Uh, and during that period, I was just still trying to figure out myself and, uh, you know, what I shall do next. Should be next. Wow, wow. And I'm sure a lot of, you know, African diaspora can relate with your story. Even myself, you know, the notion of coming back home, seeing a very different way of living as opposed to being abroad and feeling like you're really working your life away. You know, interesting. Thank you for sharing yeah. that with us. So when you were, you know, deciding to come back home from a practical perspective for, you know, some people who may be listening and they're also thinking, this is now my time to go back home. How did you navigate the process of readapting to life in Kenya? And what were some of your main concerns when you were making this transition? Um, well, number one is um, literally I had to uproot myself from, you know, the, the United States and come back here. So you do the usual stuff, put your stuff in a shipping container and, you know, you ship everything here. You know, stuff which you need for your sustenance. Uh, I didn't want to get into yes. the whole thing of trying to get here and buy stuff. Rather, was uh, I will say very fortunate that uh, my parents at least allowed me to stay in, you know, uh, one of the houses. Um, so um, because, you know, when you're coming back, you know, you're still trying to figure yourself. It's not like you're going to land here. There, there are some, there are some diasporans who I know have been, 
reposted by their companies or the organizations. They've been reposted back to Kenya. So for them, that is ideal, you know, very ideal. So when they choose to now leave those organizations, um, it is a much smoother transition. But for me, it is like literally you're dislocating yourself from, you know, that environment and you're uh, re-injecting yourself back here. Now the true, the true elements uh, start to show themselves, you know, Things that you used to see when you're visiting now are very different, you know. Um, people are always hanging out with you, you know, you'll go out to clubs, you'll party, you know, you know, you know, for time, all time's sake, you know, and things like that. But then now when you're back here for a longer period of time, those things are just not tenable, neither sustainable, you know. So uh, you start now trying to think, okay, what do I need to do, you know. So what I will say is, Things to make sure that you want to have in place is have a good support structure. Always lean back to family, you know, uh, which for me I found to be very important, number one. And when I say family, not just, you know, my parents and my brothers, but also I'm talking the extended family, you know, my uncles, you know, my aunts. And we're always speaking, you know, we're always speaking a lot. Some of them are still in the United States, you know. So I say this is what's going on. Uh, number two, be very open We uh, in regards to what you're feeling and what you're going through. You know, people who can relate and understand as you've rightfully identified are the diasporans. You know, um, some Kenyans might say, you know, I'm saying this also laughing is they say, hey, you know, you have, you know, fast world problems, you know, so, um, um, but <clears throat> sometimes it is hard to relate to certain things to the people who are here, you know, and trying to get them to understand really if you have an issue, as far as they look at you, you know, they're like, hey, you know, you look fine. You know, it looks like you're doing great. And you're like, no, I'm not. You know, so uh, being able to speak with, um, you know, um, you know, people within the diaspora means a lot. And the things I'm talking about are things such as people keeping time or someone telling her, let's meet. And they never show up. And they're the ones who call for the meeting. You know, for me, I find that shocking. Uh, things such as, you know, no courtesy, or you're told, hey, let's meet at 10. Someone shows up at 10.59, they did show up at 10, you know, as far as they're concerned. You know, so just mm. trying to learn through those things and uh, uh, sometimes biting your tongue and not being as harsh or as sharp as you will be when you're across the pond, as we'll call it. The other thing is uh, on this support structure, I will say get Good mentors. Where uh, the moment before you actually come and decide you're going to stay, uh, during those initial trips, whereby you're trying to set yourself up uh, for the final move, identify yeah. people you can trust and who are above you in many regards. You know, uh, these are people who you know uh, can hold you to account. You know, for your actions or decisions you know good or bad and they can be there to help and guide you that is very key I, you know i i think i figured that out you know two years in you know uh i will not call my return back home a smooth one very rough landing you know heat a lot of turbulence and you know a lot of money is wasted in the process and other resources as well uh but being able to have a good support structure is yeah. is very key uh and very very you know crucial and also remember that the, uh, the other point is um, anyone that is coming from the diaspora, people always see that, uh, you know, they have resources, though they have 
you know, this, that, and the other. So not everyone that is around you means well, you know, the others who are just there to benefit themselves. So one has to be very careful with the type of associations and friendships that they are, you know, uh, forming or, you know, trying to create new bonds and new relationships. Uh, some of it is, you know, old friends who probably have been, gr you know, they were great friends. We, we understand life goes on and people make uh, choices and choices also have consequences. And some of them, they are probably not very good ones, you know. Uh, and uh, sometimes if you're not careful, you might get pulled into the wrong company and then be involved in some undesirable things. Um, <clears throat> but then lastly, uh, the thing that I will say is uh, prior to being able to move back is allow yourself time to honest to goodness decompress and just embrace the you know the home environment for what it is you know you know with all its nuances and uh, imperfections and everything else uh, just accept it uh, it makes the adjustment phase much smoother and easier um, and um, yeah at least those, those will be the quick five things that I'll think you know, think about. And then, of course, after someone has been, you know, after they've been able to settle in, then they can now start thinking about moving now into the phase of uh, either they can look at uh, re-entering, you know, employment, formal employment uh, as an employee, you know, either for the civil or public sector, or they can uh, choose to go business on their own after they've been able to establish, you know, the proper uh, parameters with a good with good mentors uh, and a support mechanism. That would be my advice. That's very, very good advice. I think it's advice I will personally use myself when I finally make the decision to go back home. So very, very useful. Thank you for that. Thanks for listening. Connect with us at AppreVest on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And let's continue our conversation. Remember, you can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms.